Hello everybody and welcome back to Ear Read This. My name's Ash and today's podcast is a follow-up to our recent episode on Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. If you've heard the episode, you'll know I was interviewing actor and writer Debbie Cannon and you will have heard me confidently promise you this extended interview on the morrow. But it was not to be, as due to a sudden attack of idiocy, I deleted the audio files, and there was nothing I could do, and nothing I could upload. Fortunately, Debbie was kind enough to agree to redo this part of our interview, so here it is at last, and uh, apologies for the wait. Debbie is the writer and performer of a solo show based on Sir Gawain called Green Knight. It focuses on the character of Lady Bertillac and shows us what life was like for her after the events of the poem. Directed by Flavia Davila, with dramaturgy by Jen McGregor, during its runs at Edinburgh and Buxton Fringe, Green Knight attracted rave reviews. Former Eerie This guest Michael Smith calling it a play which, like the lady, should never be forgotten. It will open your eyes to one of the poem's more intriguing facets and lead you into new ways of thinking about this mysterious and magnificent alliterative masterpiece. In our previous episode, Debbie mentioned briefly reading Sir Gawain in the original as a student, and I started off by asking her whether or not this was the first text she had read in Middle English. It was, it was actually. It was, um, so it was before I went to university for my first semester, first year, and we were sent a, a reading list and Gawain was on there and it was the first. Actually, no, I tell you, I'd done a little bit of Chaucer at the end of school. This is, So this is probably the second Middle English thing I'd read. But yeah, so I sat down over a summer and, and sort of tried to read a little bit every day and initially uh, found it very tough because the language is difficult. Mm. Um, but the more that I read, the more I got into it. And and yes, it was it was fantastic. Yeah. And I can remember sort of I can remember working on it when when I got to university as well. So no, it was it was definitely a highlight of of that first teaching year. Yeah. The closest I've come is the sort of, you know, prose paraphrase versions where someone yeah. tried to try to do as literal a translation as possible. Uh-huh. But, mm-hmm. um, no, we were we were very encouraged to read the original and only look at the translations if we were struggling, I think. But but yeah. I'm glad I did, actually, because you get part of the joy of it is the story and a whole other area of joy in in the poem is is the language and the rhythm mm. and that whole that the sounds of it um and also kind of entering i suppose that different world <laughs> which is described mm. by this language that feels quite strange and yeah yeah that that was part of the the whole experience I think so I'm, I'm really glad that I, I read it that way first of all uh, even though it was a little bit of a challenge but it was uh, it was definitely worth it and then um, fast forwarding to your play what had brought you back to the story was it was it a long time you know I'm, I want to do something with Gawain or was it just a sudden sort of oh I know oh, there was there were several things that kind of brought it all together I think I knew that I wanted to do I wanted to write something that could be a solo show for me and I wanted to write something that I suppose would fit my casting type and I wanted to obviously it had to be something that I was interested in and you know had had an enthusiasm for so after after I did my undergraduate degree I did a, a DPhil in medieval studies so that that was really a whole kind of period and world that I was very very interested in and uh, very immersed in for quite a long time and I suppose I was kind of thinking back and thinking, you know, what, 
are there any works that I could, you know, write around? Uh, and I thought, first of all, I think I thought about Marjorie Kemp. Okay. And I was quite intrigued to write something about Marjorie. And then I, I thought of Gawain and thought about, you know, this this was this was the text that I, I really, really loved when I was an undergraduate and started thinking about a female character there, the woman there who, as we were saying last time, there are so many questions about her and she's so interesting yeah. and a little bit different. And I thought, well, what, what about if... I, I tried to step into her story and think about all those questions that you have about her. So, you know, how did she get here? Um, what's her motivation? What's she doing? What's going on in her head? But also what happens to her afterwards? So could I look at her as an older woman? Because obviously I couldn't play her in the, the sort of the younger days with Gawain. Could I imagine her as an older woman looking back on that experience and telling the story? And the more that I sort of looked into that, the more the more drawn into it I was and the more uh, attracted I was to her as a character and the way that she sort of started to, to develop. And I sat down, so I sat down over, it would have been the summer of 2016. I can remember sitting down <laughs> in what were gloriously sunny days, <laughs> as we were saying, the theme of those, at the book festival. And I sat and I sort of did a bit of translation from the original every day. And it was it was kind of mm. pulling out so it wasn't a kind of a word for word translation. I was pulling out the sections that I felt were most relevant for me to tell that story. So I made a translated sections and the first version of it was basically mainly translation with a little bit of me starting to talk about her her suppose her her backstory. So the way that the show works is it's it's divided into four sections like the the poem and at the beginning of each section there's a little bit of her speaking directly to the audience as this older woman uh to sort of frame the, the story that she tells. So so there was a lot of translation and then a little bit of me kind of starting to build that and then as I sort of worked through drafts of it after that the translation got smaller and it became more my own words and the, mm. the backstory built up uh sort of a little bit more so so yes I think that was a very roundabout way of answering your question but I think I probably... no that's really interesting I hadn't appreciated um first time round that it that it began as a as a translation as opposed to yeah you know beginning with the character that's really interesting uh-huh. So did it? Did the did Lady Burslack sort of just start taking <laughs> taking over, as it were, or was it more you just wanted to ground yourself in that world and then? No, I think I think I always I always knew that I was starting with her and it was her voice. Mm. But in order to to have her telling the story of the poem, I I started to translate and as I say, just kind of built around that with sections of her her speaking. But but yes, I mean she really. The more, the more I kind of worked through it, the more that character really developed. And I think that was partly mm. due to some of the other things that had kind of drawn me to want to, to do a, a solo piece in the first place. I think I've been kind of wrestling with, with ideas for quite a long time. And I think a few years before that, I, was, I had cancer. And I, also my brother had died. And that was, that was a kind of a big... Yeah obviously a lot of stuff to go through and I kind of came out the other side of that and I wanted to I wanted to write something that that came from that experience but I, it, I couldn't write anything that was personal 
because it was just too close. Mm. Uh, you know, I was, I was too close yeah. to it. There may come a time in the future when I can, but at that point, and I think still probably now, it, it's too close to talk about, okay, this is what happened to me in, in more direct terms. So I think I was probably looking for something that allowed me to address that whole idea of feeling that you're getting older, a sense of mortality, a sense of, you know, real vulnerability. So there were lots of mm. there were lots of things there that really fed into that story working for me, I think as well. And I think, you know, also I think as we talked about last time this this real kind of power dynamic going on with the lady and Gawain and and Bertola as well. And that that was something that was really interesting to explore as a woman uh, to mm. think about, you know, you know, obviously this is a very strange relationship she finds herself in with Gawain and I suppose with Bertola as well. But just thinking about how a woman manages that dynamic, that relationship and, you know, what she might wish to kind of get from it, what she might want to change. So, yeah, as I say, there were lots of things that kind of drew me, drew me to her and to that story. It does seem like almost a perfect source material for for all of that yeah you know going on in your life um you can take each part of that and see it see it running through through the poem and yeah. it can almost be the boldest thing about the poem depending on how depending on how you're feeling mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and then you know the tone of it changes it can be quite sad quite mordant and you could it could make you feel very mortal or yeah. it can be very sort of burlesque and, and quite silly in places yeah absolutely and what i found is every time i've kind of gone back to it it's had a slightly different tone depending on where I am mm. in my life, and I, I, I'm. Oh, that's interesting. I'm, I, I don't know how, you know, the experience of lockdown and COVID is going to sort of have have an influence on how I feel when I go back to it. Because obviously, you know, we're going to be coming out of a period of really intense loss, um, which we're all yeah. going to have to try and wrestle with at some point. I think. And, and sort of process and, and manage what's happened. And I, I'm, I'm quite, yeah, I, I do wonder whether that will cast some kind of shade over the next time we do it. Mm. Um, but it is always interesting to see how it, how it changes, which is nice. Yeah, almost with the seasons, as it were. Yeah, <laughs> true. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so we, we've talked a bit about these w- wonderful, juicy questions about Lady Bertillac. Um, I don't want to give anything away for people who haven't seen your show, but how did, did how did you set about tackling those? Like, do, did, were there certain questions you really wanted to answer, or were there just certain sort of you know mysteries you wanted to kind of prod at? I think do you know what? it was it was really the so I, I definitely wanted to explore that power dynamic. That was a really big thing, I think, and that mm. actually that developed as a. Um, as something that that was really needling at me and interesting me that the more that I worked on the show and the more that I sort of um, performed it I think actually otherwise a lot of it was feeding in from those big themes so I was I, I, you know that overriding thing about that we talked about last time where you know nature is cyclical but we as people can only kind of move in a straight line from birth mm. to death and that really fed into I think what I was doing because I think as I was looking at that character, I started to think about, okay, where did she come from? And I was, I was thinking about the idea of, you know, maybe she's come from, she's come from a a, a, a much more deprived background, uh, and she's been given access to this sort of world of of wealth and magic and 
beautiful clothes and 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 food and I, I sort of developed the idea of her as as somebody who perhaps wanted to when she met Gawain it was almost like she saw him as this amazing romantic figure so she sort of she's very attracted to him but also he he's potentially giving her access to this glamorous world of Camelot mm. so I, I sort of I played a lot with the idea of, of Camelot as this marvelous youthful rich gorgeous court which I think we get from the poem and how this is something that she she dreamed of, she wanted access to. So actually, that that was that was an interesting thread to explore with her. And I think that whole idea of her trying to get access to that world as a means of giving herself more status, more importance. But actually, what 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 happens in in the the show is that she, it becomes much more about her feeling the importance of telling her story. So. I was thinking a lot about the idea that, uh, you know, people in that period, the majority of them are are just lost to us unless there's some way of recording them or them having left something that we remember them by. And in particular, you know, that that's often the case with women because, you know, very often lower status. And I wanted to think about how she, so at the start of the poem, the, the character is is older, uh, she's widowed um, and she, she's about to enter a, sort of be put in a convent um, and she's desperate to tell her story before she's put away because she wants she wants to be remembered she wants them to know who she is she wants them to know that she had a part in this story in this world and that's that's her way of kind of giving herself longevity I think and it, it's it's her way of standing up against that straight line from you know, we're born, we die, and after that, we're gone. <laughs> and I liked exploring that with Lord Bertilak and the Green Knight character as well. And the idea that for Bertilak, the transformation into the Green Knight gives him, it gives him status, it gives him power, it gives him this, uh, it gives him impressiveness, but it also means that he can defy death. You know, he can have his head yeah. chopped off when he comes back again. And I loved kind of playing with that idea of, of how he was reveling in that transformation uh, yeah. in the poem. So I think, uh, yeah, those those themes really shaped how the characters developed as much as the interests that I had coming in from outside that I wanted to sort of bring into it, if that makes sense. Oh, I love, I lo- absolutely love that. I, 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 hadn't, I, I hadn't appreciated the, the sort of mirrored take on Bertilak as well, that he's, yeah. he's kind of... He's getting his own little portion of immortality how, for however, however long it lasts. He can feel it he uh, with this transformation. And mm. I think Gawain as well, actually, because you know he he's he, one or two one of two things are going to happen to him. Either he is going to be killed, and he's going to you know be gain renown and fame for being the knight who stood up to the Green Knight and. Uh, um, if he falls, he falls, you know, but he'll, he's going to yeah. be remembered um, or he's going to manage to survive in some way. And I suppose that I think, again, you know, we were talking last time about about that struggle for him at the end of the poem where he survives, but he survives with his reputation and his mind damaged. And I, I suppose this that kind of play there between which survival is more important for him. And I think you can kind of, you can see that changing at different points in the poem, or certainly that that's what I was sort of playing with in the show, that there are stages where he would love to grasp onto 
staying in this really vital, gorgeous, beautiful life and other stages where yeah. it's like, well, you know, <laughs> I'm a knight. <laughs> I need yeah. to trust in God and I need to go out there and and um, you know, uh do what I've do what I'm required to do. And and definitely you get you get hints of that in the poem as well, in the original. So Yeah, the sense that he, he does love life, but occasionally he's tempted or or feels that from habit or from learning that he he may have to trade that for reputational immortality. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's fantastic. Um, you you said you were working for you know you began with with the original, um, doing your translation and then that before you got into the play. Were you work? Did you work from any other translations as well, or was it helpful to kind of steer clear of those? I, I did have Simon Armitage's translation, but I didn't work from it. I just used that if occasionally if there was a section that was particularly naughty, and I just wanted to see <laughs> what, he'd, what he'd done, you know, how he translated it. So that was that was the one that I went to, but I tried to steer as clear as much as possible because I really, I, I felt it would have been too easy for those words to slip into my words, if that makes sense. So yeah, that that was one of the reasons that I went back to the original to start off with. Nice. And, and did you keep any of the um, the verse and alliteration, or or did you did you want to kind of rewrite that as as prose dialogue? Um, so I didn't I didn't use any verse, um, and I didn't use a lot of I didn't I didn't deliberately try to use alliteration. I think what what I wanted to get because it was it's a storytelling show essentially, and I think that's. That was one of the, the lovely things that I wanted to bring forward from the original that it, it probably would have been delivered orally. So I didn't use a, a lot of illustration, but I did try and use little bits every so often. So I suppose what I was aiming for more was kind of like a a mixture of something that was more naturalistic because we had to have the the lady sort of telling her story um, to people mm. if it was a conversation, but also slightly at point slightly heightened poetic language because I think uh, I was aware that that was um, that that's such a beautiful quality of the poem and also it, in terms of of keeping people hooked over an hour's show it, it, it's lovely to use the to use slightly more heightened language at times and also uh, to use language that has nice sounds to it as well mm. so I tried to to use vocabulary that would be it would sound lovely some of the time, but I did. I mean, um, you know, I, I have I, I have bits where I think that the last line in the first section is, yeah. So he gallops from the hall, the hooves striking sparks from the floor. So there's a bit of the rhythm there to kind of give you the sense of the horse and also a little bit of alliteration. But generally speaking, not not as a as a rule. There are no bobs and wheels or anything like that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that would have been it. That would have been very ambitious. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> Especially, especially in dialogue. (laughs) I'm sure there are people who are very capable of doing that out there, but it was. I think it would have tested me too much. (laughs) You would have. You got a sense that the the prospect of the convent really has changed her. Yes. uh, If she's (laughs) talking in bob and wheels. Absolutely. Something. This is a, a result of having lost. Um, the audio from the first time we had this conversation but I know that you told this wonderful story of finding a record of a town clerk and it, it, it sort of connected to what you were saying earlier about Lady Bertillac just wanting her story to be told and people of her time not really having many records but you having um, just discovered this 
archival reference. Could I just ask you what that story was again? Because it was yeah, marvelous. yeah. I was just actually so. Since we last talked, I have actually referred back to my thesis <laughs> to find oh, out really? the detail of it. So, um, so yes, it, it, so this what what we were talking about last time. This comes from um, work that I did for my PhD thesis, which was partly looking at Ten Clarks and the development of of civic writing um, in York and London in the Middle Ages. And um, one of the things that had really stuck in my memory from from the work that I'd done was what we saw a lot were were town clerks developing that writing and putting their own name in (laughs) as much as possible. And sometimes, you know, building a little story around themselves, partly, I I guess, to, to make sure that they were remembered. It was a kind of a memorial device. So this particular instance actually isn't isn't a town clerk. It was a city chamberlain of London called Andrew Horn, but he compiled or had compiled, arranged to be compiled, employed people to compile some special registers for the city. And it's a bit of a complex story because this particular register was then split into three parts and is now in, in three different libraries, I think. But what we've got is one section, which is a, a, a kind of a chronicle of events. And it's very it's very impersonal, generally speaking, uh, quite formal. But uh, uh, in for 1305, we have this entry that says, that refers to uh, a, a son of Andrew Horn, who was born and baptised, lived for seven weeks and is buried, can't remember what the name of the chapel is, but buried in in a chapel in London. So he's used that medium uh, to allow himself to record the loss of this child. And again, you know, what we're getting there is is a child who who would otherwise just be completely forgotten within, you know, a few generations, I guess. That, That really struck me, again, partly because it's so personal, but also the kind of the use of of writing there to to just make something permanent uh, for that lost child, I think is really, really striking. And actually, interestingly, on, on a completely different tangent, I suppose, but, but connected, since we last spoke, um, one of my relatives has discovered that we had a, a relative who was lost in the First World War that nobody knew about because he was lost really young and nobody was around who still remembered him and so it, it, it just goes to show how within the space of 100 years somebody can just be completely lost yeah so and I think you know that 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 all kind of gives extra resonance to that whole thing of, of how do we I suppose how do we establish that we're remembered but also how do we want to be remembered and what control do we have over that as well who who tells your story as they say in Hamilton um so yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry <laughs> I slipped into a bit of musical theatre there uh, <laughs> oh that's so that's so moving yeah hmm. just finding that kind of little artifacts yeah uh-huh uh-huh and seeing that it survived this long as well hmm Oh, one th- one thing I wanted to ask about the show: Are you in in the performance? Are you Lady Bertalac and other characters? Obviously, it's a solo show. Uh, do you play La- Lady Bertalac only, or do you play other characters as well, or or is it sort of the other? Do we get the other characters through Lady Bertalac's impression of them? Um, so I do do perform other characters. So you'll hear Gawain speaking, Arthur speaking, Bertalac, and. Um, Green Knight um, and so forth. But I think 
So the way it's done, it's not as if it's her doing an impression of them. It's not Lady Birchlight doing an impression of them, but it is, I think, that the characters are, are coloured by her telling of the story. So, and I think that that was that was a real kind of challenge with it because actually, because I was telling her story, in some ways, sometimes it feels like Gawain gets a bit shortchanged. Um, you know, I'd love to kind of, and I, I can I can work really, and I do work really hard to think about what what's his motivation at different points, what's going on for him, you know, what's he trying mm. to do. But actually, because it's her story, there's there's a it's slightly limited and and um, without you know, I have to kind of be careful that he doesn't kind of take over again. Mm. So so yes, it's it's her her telling of these characters. So we have a sense that you know she 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 really was. Um, very taken with Gawain, believes that she's in love with him, but at, at the point of, of 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 him being at the castle at, at Haut Desert, but by the time she's telling retelling the story from her middle age, she's much kind of I want to say wiser. <laughs> her opinion has changed of him uh, based on what's happened since. So, I think it's important that the show is her story. It's her telling her the story, so it's her. Her impression of it all but but yeah it, it's it's not like when I'm performing it as I say it's not like it's Lady Bertolette doing an impression of the Green Knight or whatever it's 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 as if they're they're there I think as if they're there got you I, I know I know a little bit about how difficult it is to get a, a solo show um going uh what was it like get, getting it on its feet and 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 when when did it start to come together like I said I, I wrote wrote that first draft sort of in the summer 2016 and then I started doing little sort of workshop sessions on it with two theatre makers who I really have huge respect for and and love very much Uh, so Flavia Davila who ultimately became the director and Jen McGregor who is a playwright and director dramaturg and she also did some directing workshops with me to start off with and then she ended up doing dramaturgy work with me on the script to help really tighten up because I suppose for me the one of the challenges there was that I was so immersed in the original it was it was needing outside eyes to kind of go right okay you probably don't need this two paragraph explanation of the pentacle here (laughs) could we just cut that down a bit (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so it was sort of trying it was trying to keep the important stuff but trying to make it dramatic I suppose and make it entertaining mm. for 60 minutes because 60 minutes with one person talking to you is quite 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 a lot it's a lot to fill yeah well a lot to kind of it's it's, it's important really important that you keep people's attention and keep them engaged I think mm. and that's if, if I you know standing up and reading the poem perhaps would, would have meant that people might have drifted at points so so it was kind of getting that balance so she did really amazing work with me on that and then sort of uh, I think I started talking to people it was one of those things where I was kind of like I've written this thing what do I do with it and I was trying to kind of pull on my whole <laughs> um, friend base and acquaintance base in in the theatre world and sort of saying look you know is, have you got any advice here what do you think I could do and in the end I managed to I, I got an offer of um, a space for the fringe in 2017 Flavia came on board as director and we had a, a run, I think, of about, it was sort of like three days over three weeks. So it was probably nine or 10, nine or 10 shows altogether. So sorry, three days each, three or four days each week. And that was, that was terrifying, uh, <laughs> but also just tremendous, left me broke. <laughs> 
because that's what the fringe does. <laughs> yep. And obviously there was a lot of kind of, you know what it's like when you're putting something on for the first time, you have to lay out quite so, you know, sort of paying for all those rehearsal uh, times and so on. But it was um it was very much a labor of love. And yes, so that 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 was how it got from there to there. It was, I suppose, me keeping on pushing at it and then bringing other people on board who were able to to help me actually get it to a point where it could it could go on so yeah there was there were you know a lot of people kind of involved even though it was basically me on the stage <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean to, to, it's so it's so difficult without the people to bounce bounce it off and I, yeah. um, having that little bit of a first audience absolutely sort of yeah yeah get some reactions so where where have you performed uh since the fringe in 2017 um so that was the so 2017 in the fringe in edinburgh was the first run and then the summer after that i took it down to buxton fringe oh cool fabulous i love buxton fringe so much and they have been extremely good to me down there and it was great it won an award it got a really lovely couple of reviews and that that was just fantastic and actually for me taking it out of some taking it out of scotland i suppose but primarily taking it out of edinburgh so i was showing it to people who didn't know me at all and mm. it was a completely fresh audience and that was just lovely and i got such a such a great response to it there so i took it back the next year <laughs> and i also did it as in, you would <laughs> as you would and then i did it again so that was 2019 and i did it again that that year um in the fringe at the scottish poetry library which again was lovely we had one particular amazing show where it um i was up in the mezzanine and we had the doors open because it was so hot and there was this massive thunderstorm and it it oh. seemed to be that every time the green night came on there was thunder and lightning and it just oh, wow. <laughs> was marvelous it was one of the best experiences ever i felt like i had this bonding exercise with the audience it was lovely um and then i took it to... and with the elements it was amazing <laughs> yeah it was like yeah. yeah god is my light tech um so i was, <laughs> and then we, I, I took it last was it last year yeah february 2020 took it down to York, which was great because that was where I did my PhD. Uh, so it was really nice taking it down there. And obviously they've got a really strong sort of medievalist community there. So there were some people in the audience who knew the poem really well, other people who didn't know anything about it and came fresh. And, you know, it was just wonderful to kind of talk to all of them afterwards. And so it, it's that, that so yeah, that that's the last time I've done, I did it last, it was in February, 2020 in York at the Theatre Royal. And then mm-hmm. I was meant to do it the next month in Cambridge. But then, of course, lockdown happened and we, we postponed it for a year. And then we've just postponed it again to September uh, this year. So fingers crossed it should get mm-hmm. on. Well, we'll have to just see. Fingers crossed we might get to do a run in Cambridge in September. But yeah, last year was, a you know, obviously the important thing is is to you know do the right thing and stay safe and so on um but it, there were quite a lot of theatrical things booked that, that ended up being cancelled but i mean you okay. know it's like you, you kind of actually when that happens here you know, in some ways it's a relief because you can then say right well that means i don't have to worry about going to this place across the country or whatever i can just stay home and stay safe so oh well i, I sincerely hope september does go ahead um yes me too i love yeah. it <laughs> Yeah, well, I'd I'd love to see it as well because I, I, 
it would it would be great after after having heard so much about it to 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 see it live. Well, next um, time we get I get to do a run in Edinburgh, I'll make sure I let you know and I'll I'll send you a ticket. <laughs> Because I really, yeah. I really want. To, I was meant to. So last summer, the plan was to do a run in the Fringe at the Storytelling Centre, which was just has been my dream from day one to do it at the Storytelling Centre. Yeah. So uh, you know, hopefully at some point we'll get back to do that, either there or somewhere else. But I'll definitely do it in Edinburgh again. So, oh, that'd be great. Um, have you had any any ideas of of recording it as a as a either video or audio? There's there's a couple of recordings, not not of the whole thing. We recorded um the first section of it, so about the first ten minutes. So that must have been the fringe in 2019. <laughs> recorded that just so that I could have something that I could send out to people. And there's also mm. from I think the Christmas before that, I'd worked with a company called Channel Seven A who um do live streaming and and videography and so we actually did uh, uh, it's not the show it's a storytelling version of Gawain and the Green Knight and that's that's up on YouTube but other than that I don't think so because to be honest I think it part of the 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 sort of the core of it for me and the the, the joy of it for, for me as a performer is that I've got the audience right there and I'm able mm. to sort of talk to them and see their faces and respond to that and I think as I, as I was saying to you the, the sort of the, the heart of the story is that this is Lady Bertilak able to tell her story to a group of semi-captive people just yeah. that hour and she's running out of time and she's got to do it there and I just don't want to I don't I, I don't at the moment want to record it because I think having the live audience there is really important I mean I, I, I won't say never because you never know why things are going to pan out but it's not it's not something I'm planning to do I'd rather I'd rather you know film and do audios of things that are written specifically for that purpose rather yeah and convert a live show yeah oh well thank you so much for um for for doing this I've got to the end of my questions now and um <laughs> uh, the only other thing I wanted to ask which I think we did last time was just because it's a book podcast um, I usually ask, the, I, I often forget, but I <laughs> try to ask the guests if they have any um, book recommendations. It doesn't necessarily need to be connected to what we've talked about today. It doesn't have to be to do with Gawain. It could be just something you've read recently. Gosh. Sorry to put you on the spot. No, no, that's okay. You're <laughs> do take a minute. right. I should have thought of this, actually. I'm just trying to think what the most recent thing I've read was... Because actually, I'm doing a, I'm doing a science course with the Open University, so it's mainly science at the moment. Oh, really? But <laughs> what I also because because I'm I'm I I try to write children's fiction as well, so I tend to read a fair bit of that. Mm. And there is an author who so that my next book on on the pile is the latest book by an author called Christopher Edge, uh, who does write for children, but the books are fantastic. They they have a a real kind of science element to them but they're also very human and very sort of um heart-rending often absolutely beautiful so that and I've also I've also just finished a book called Patience and Fortitude which was about the New York Public Library which was interesting as well so I'll 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 go with those I think (laughs) Brill thank you so much for that and thank you so much for doing this twice Um, pleasure Yeah, um, no, I, I really, really appreciate it. I couldn't believe um, I'd somehow deleted our, our conversation the first time around. Not at all. Can I just say one last thing, actually, before we finish? Of course. Which was just that, 
what I should have mentioned as well in the sort of the development of the show, how important mm. Gawain fans have been. Um, because I didn't oh, yeah. really appreciate what a large, how many people there were out there who had read the poem at some point in their lives, either in translation or the original, and it left a lasting impression with them. So what I found when I was doing the show was I would have people kind of contacting me on Twitter or whatever saying, this is fantastic, you know, love the poem, really interested to see the show, and we could establish a communication. Michael Smith, who I know you've talked to um, very mm. much, was a supporter from from early on, and I used, uh, he gave permission for me to use images from his translation of the poem on on my, the, the bookmarks that I use as programmes. But also, um, you know, the, there's a, I think, you know, as well, there's a fantastic Facebook group or, um, who uh, uh, of Gawain enthusiasts mm. and you know they also have been huge supporters and it's it's been an amazing way to kind of establish lovely friendships with them and I'm really grateful for that so I did just want to mention those people too I hope that's okay <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah no I, I I've also seen sort of just enthusiasm for this mm-hmm. after releasing our episode you know at the start of the month or, or whenever it was, a, a noticeable level of enthusiasm on, on yeah. things like Facebook and Twitter for Gawain, uh-huh. which was a, kind of a surprise, to be honest. Um, like I wasn't, I never really know how each episode will go down. And sometimes you think, well, everybody is into this and it doesn't uh-huh. really get much. And other times something that you think, oh, well, I enjoyed that one, but I don't think anyone's going to listen to it suddenly will um, be popular. I didn't really know what to think about Gawain. So it was just yeah. a delight that yeah people like is it I, I don't want to get the name wrong is it Gawain and, Gawain and Leek. Leek yeah and Leek yeah uh-huh. yeah so that was lovely yeah so, they're they're an awesome bunch of people oh well I'm really glad you mentioned them <laughs> thank you them <laughs> and that I'm afraid brings us to the end of today's episode a huge thank you to Debbie Cannon for coming on the show not once but twice if you want to read more about her play and keep track of any upcoming performances I've left a link to her website in the episode description box That's all for now. Until next time, happy reading.